the preacher pulls out the big club out of his bag, the, the big Bertha, you know, the driver. He's going he's gonna to go for 350 yards with this one. If this little congregation, possibly somewhere in modern-day Italy, is thinking about going back to Judaism, if they've been drifting and they want to go back to, as it were, Moses, then he says, let's talk about Moses. And he winds up. If there was ever a time to uh, deal with the temptation of returning to the Old Covenant and the Law of Moses, he's going to deal with it today. And he's going to use Moses himself. He's going to use the very acts by which they know so well and are so familiar with to talk about how those were actually acts of faith in the promise. The law that you want to go back to, the thing that you, you think you understand so clearly in the Old Covenant, covenant, Judaism, let me explain it to you from the Bible. I mean, think about it. Moses is the very embodiment of the Old Covenant. He is the very thing, or the thing they think they want to return to. You remember when Moses was pit directly against Jesus when he was here on earth. When the Pharisees were talking to the blind man that Christ had healed, and they're saying, what did he do to you? How, how did he open your eyes? And in John 9, he answers them and says, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And the Pharisees reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of, do you remember what they said? Of Moses. First century Judaism had a warped view of the old covenant. And at the very center of that was Moses. And in drifting from Christ, they are drifting to their own version of Moses. And so the preacher is going to show them who Moses was, what drove him, and why he was able to do the very hard things that he did. The things in the law of Moses were not works-based, law-driven acts, but rather they were acts of faith. Faith in that which was not seen. He's basically saying, if Moses were alive today, he would tell you the same thing. Moses was a Christian. He believed by faith in the promises to come. Don't drift, draw near. Now, there's something very special about verses 23 through 29. As you know, with each character in the hall of faith, the preacher focuses on some aspect of his faith. With Abel, it was give of your very best to God. With Enoch, it was walk in faith like Enoch. We saw several with Abraham, but one of them was to sojourn like Abraham being a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of the world. And today with Moses, we're going to see a faith that continually makes, watch this, active choices, decisions, decisions that act upon what he really believes, though he cannot yet see it, decisions that choose to please God rather than himself, decisions that fear God rather than man. Moses' faith is a very active, decision-making faith. And in this day and age of anemic, passive, cognitive-only faith, when people talk about faith, I, I believe that, and they mean I accept that set of facts, this preacher challenges us to understand that genuine faith steps out. Genuine faith pleases God. Genuine faith has backbone. Do Christians today need a little spiritual backbone? Can I get an amen there? We do. And we can say we do. We can pick on ourselves because we do. If you look at past generations, 
frankly, we're soft. Most of us have the backbone of a jellyfish. You look at these men and women in the Hall of Faith, they did hard things. And it's not because they were intrinsically tough. It's because their faith was powerful. Their faith had legs. We need faith with legs. Faith that steps out. Faith that does hard things because we know it pleases God. And if it pleases God, God will then take care of us. This little church in the first century needed it. And we need it today. And what we have here in these verses are five acts of faith by Moses or, or his family or the people of Israel in which they actively choose that which pleases God over that which is more comfortable. So we might just reduce all I've said to this. Genuine faith chooses, it actively chooses to please God rather than that which makes us more comfortable or pleases us. And in each case, and this is the key to all this, Jeff mentioned this this morning, in each case, that decision, that act of faith is without fear. You see, that's the key. Because a lot of times we can make decisions, kind of like with Russian roulette, I'm just going to pull the trigger, but I'm scared to death. No, this, this is the kind of faith that makes a well-informed, biblically-based decision that this will bring more glory to God and none to myself, and I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Do you want this kind of faith? I do. Would you like to be able to boldly cast your lot with the Lord and His people in the face of danger and then sleep like a baby at night? That's the kind of faith I want. A living, active, walking, courageous faith that swings for the fences and even in the face of danger, sleeps well at night. And that's what we have here. Let me give you the five points, and I'll repeat them as I go through the text. So don't worry if you don't get them all now. Number one, and I put them in the imperative so we can immediately begin to make application. Choose sanctity over tyranny without fear. Choose sanctity over tyranny without fear. Number two, choose identity over luxury without fear. Number three, choose God's approval over man's without fear. Number four, choose atonement over autonomy without fear. And I'll explain that. And then number five, choose sovereignty over security without fear. Let's dive right in to Moses' first act of faith, or, or in reality, the faith of his parents. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Because they saw he was a beautiful child and because they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, this story is told in Exodus chapter 2. I'll leave that for your homework. You don't need to turn there, but I will read from it. But let me set the stage. Hebrew families were multiplying at a faster rate than the Egyptian families, and Pharaoh started to get scared. This group of 70 had now swelled to hundreds of thousands, apparently. So Pharaoh decides to make... Listen to this phrase, immediate birth abortion. Now, I use that on purpose because I want to bring the reality of what was going on here. Immediate birth abortion. Not only legal, but compulsory for all Hebrew boys that were born. And he chose to use the Hebrew midwives to do the dirty deed. And the way they would do it is when they would help the birthing mother upon her stool have the child, they would turn around and they would expose the child so that he would die on his own. He was committing genocide to lower the number of Hebrew male children because they had become a threat to Egypt. Exodus chapter 2, verse 17, but the midwives 
feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. How's he going to argue with that, right? <laughs> Verse 20, so God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. The midwives chose sanctity over tyranny. They chose to fear God rather than man. They chose to bring glory to God rather than the most important person on the earth at the time. And one of these boys that lived was Moses. His parents, Amram and Jochebed, were able to get Moses to live cooperation, no doubt, with the Hebrew midwives, and they hid him for three months. Moms, can you imagine keeping a baby quiet for three months? No one could know that that baby was alive. Listen to Acts chapter 7. In fact, go ahead and turn there with me. We'll spend some time there. Acts chapter 7, and let's listen to Stephen provide some color to this story. Of course, you know this is Stephen's last sermon in chapter 7. He's about to be martyred for his faith. And he starts to preach to the Jews steeped in Judaism about their own hero, Moses. Now look down, chapter 7, verse 17. Look at that first verse there. This is very interesting. But as the time of the promise was approaching, what have we been talking about with, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph? Having faith in God's word, the promise, the promise that was unseen, that God would fulfill that which he has begun, that when he came to Abraham in 2166 and promised him, promised him land, seed, and blessing, though he never saw it, and his son never saw it, and his son never saw it, it was as good as done. Now fast forward. Uh, Jacob, and Jacob comes to Egypt with Joseph, probably in 1876 B.C., Fast forward 430 years, 400 years, roughly. The promise is approaching. 400 years it's approaching? That's a long time of faith. But look what it says, which God had assured to Abraham. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers who had exposed their infants and they would not survive. We don't know how long they had been enslaved, but it probably wasn't too long after Joseph died. And you fast forward 400 years and you have this Pharaoh who then starts to put people, uh, put these children to death. And it was he, verse 19, who took advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose our infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. So Hebrews chapter 11 says there was two reasons. One, he was a beautiful boy. Now, what mother thought her child was ugly? Let's just be honest, okay? What mother who has an infant says, oh, huh, not so cute. I'll tell you as a pastor, I have to say they're all pretty, but they are not. And so you have to come up with things to say like, oh, a baby. My point is this, every mother thinks her baby is beautiful. I don't want to discount that, but there's more here. And what is here is the key phrase, they were not afraid 
of the king's edict. No mother is going to let someone murder her child. I would have to say against her will because we have abortion, which is horrible. But no mother's going to let anyone murder her child. But every mother would probably be very fearful if this was the king's edict, right? Because what is it going to cost her most likely? At the very least, prison time and most likely her own death. So that's the key here. It's not just that he was beautiful. It's not just that she did the hard thing. It's that they, his parents, were not afraid of the king's edict. We have to realize that what the midwives were doing, what Jochebed and her husband were doing, was right to disobey the king. It was right in the sight of God, so much that he blessed them. And they were not afraid. Why? Because they knew God was sovereign and Pharaoh was on a short leash. What did Christ say to Pilate? Pilate says, you realize I have the authority. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. You have no authority were it not given to you. Even now, you're only able to do because it is the will of my Father. So she and her husband were not afraid. And the Lord honored their disobedience. And of course, you know the story. Jochebed was hired as the daughter of Pharaoh, her nurse. And she was able to raise her own boy. No doubt she taught him Hebrew. And no doubt she told him of the promise. She stood against tyranny. And one day he would too. Now, we start to try to practically apply this, and it's not easy, is it? I mean, I think we can make some parallels. We, we are living in a sort of pagan, revitalized ancient Egypt. As you know, as of September 24th, the House voted uh, all Democrat but one, 218 votes to put a bill into law. Uh, they did not vote it into law yet, but they put a bill forward that would allow abortion up until moments before birth. This means you can slaughter a nine-pound baby moments before delivery. Now, how is it possible that one of our political parties, and I'm not saying the other one's righteous, but one of them can completely vote for that? It's because we live in an ancient Egypt. And if you think tyranny's not coming here, I'll promise you it's around the corner. How do we prepare for it? Because the line of tyranny is not easily seen until it's on top of you, right? And there is ambiguity. Here's what I want to leave us with. I don't want to give us all the answers because I don't have the answers. But I, I need to equip this congregation with the ability to disobey when the government oversteps and obey God, and to do it with confidence without fear. I spoke with my good friend Tim Cantrell in South Africa the other day and uh, did not realize how tough this last year had been. I knew some of it because of COVID restrictions in South Africa. The government had imposed uh, attendance counts and even closed down churches. They were visited by the police three times over the course of last year, and they had to go underground five times in addition to that. My point is this. Tim and his elders decided sanctity over tyranny, worship over the government. They willfully disobeyed and said, you know what? Your line is there and no further. We will honor the king, but not when it comes through the doors of worship. And they defied. And they trusted God. They were not afraid. And their church grew. We need to have the same resolve. Not for resolve's sake and not when it is unnecessary. Please hear me. It is not clear yet when that should be done, but it will be soon enough. Our 
we ready? We can't just read these stories and say, yeah, this gets me fired up and I want to have this kind of faith. Are we willing to be faithful in these areas? The day is coming. And to not make a choice is to make a choice. Let's be clear. The choice will be made for us. Moses' parents did the right thing. Now, at this point, everyone's in agreement. Everyone's like, yeah, rah, rah. I do the same thing. No one's killing my baby. I'm defying the government. Until you get to the second point here, and now it gets more difficult. Let me read to you. You don't need to turn back there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the depths, I'm sorry, than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now this gets a little harder here, okay? I want you to picture what Moses has experienced. He knows he was born a slave. And yet, uh, he doesn't have to get up every day and choke down leeks and onions before he goes and spends a 12-hour day in the hot sun making mud bricks. He, He didn't have to sleep on a reed mat on the floor and endure the pain from not only the back-breaking work from yesterday, but from the rocks on a dirt floor. No, he is the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He is the king's grandson. If this is 1526, this is most likely Amenhotep I. He is probably in the capital city of Thebes. He has spent his childhood years running down the marble hallways of the palace. He has a staff of no less than half a dozen that gently wakes him up in the morning in his nice, luxurious bed with thousand-count Egyptian cotton sheets. (laughs) He eats the best of the best. He spends his afternoons meeting with foreign dignitaries, probably his mornings lion hunting in the desert or hunting birds with trained cats, which the royals like to do. Maybe he spent his time on the Nile on a royal barge. He ate well. He dressed well. He was educated well. He held a master's degree from the University of Thebes, the original UT, right? Maybe they were the bovines or something, I don't know. But it says here in Acts 7.22 that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power and word, in word and deeds. No doubt he was at least trilingual. Egyptian, Hebrew, and then he probably knew, they say, uh, a language from the land of Canaan. He knew royal etiquette, which is not something you learn in an afternoon. By the way, do you think all these things might have been sovereignly ordained for someone that would come in 80 years later and say, let my people go in the language of the king, according to the etiquette of the king? Yet he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And I got to tell you, if I could handle the first point, Growing up, this, this confused me. He rejected not only his Egyptian identity, but his royal identity. I remember being just consumed with the splendor of Egypt and seeing the artifacts from the kingdom. Being amazed by the wealth and, and, and the riches and the modernity. And it's just, it just phenomenal. Even today, I'm mesmerized by it. And I'm thinking, couldn't he have done more in the palace? Couldn't he have had a greater influence with the leaders? Why, why did he have to walk away from so much? I like what MacArthur says. He brings it into perspective. 
From the worldly standpoint, he was sacrificing everything for nothing. But from the spiritual standpoint, he was sacrificing nothing for everything. And it's true. It's true. What is Egypt today? It's a corrupt North African country run by Muslims. I'm not saying that to be mean. That was a lion's share of the business I did in the early 90s. My biggest accounts, my biggest contracts were in Egypt. And the joke was is that we would send them brand new 4x4 Jeep Cherokees and they would be destroyed within a month of getting off the boat. These people are a pale, pale. They're not even a reflection from their former grandeur. There is nothing left but rotting tombs and rotting freeze-dried mummies. And yet God's people live. That's perspective, okay? What Moses bartered away, rotted away. But what we have today are the words of Moses by the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The first five books of the Bible that point to not only who God is, but what he promised to do. And you could read Genesis through Deuteronomy and you can believe in the one true God and know that a Messiah is coming and know that redemption is coming and see, as we learned in the, this morning, in the feasts and the sacrifices, that there is one true holy creator God that is redeeming a people for his own possession. Forget about sheets. Forget about bow hunting on the Nile, right? And so he said, my identity is no longer in the world. My identity is with Yahweh and his people. He had to choose to remain as he was. Came with strings attached. With the money came the idolatry. With the money came the world. What does that mean for us? Well, prior to coming to Christ, your identity was probably in your ethnicity. Maybe it was in your family line. Maybe it was in your social class. Most likely, if you're a man, it was in your job. All of which become a distant, distant second compared to our identity in Christ. And though you have chosen Christ, he has chosen you, you will also have to daily make these choices as this first century Hebrew church did. It's going to become more and more difficult as the world presses in. To speak very practically, there are going to be vast sectors and occupations in the marketplace where a Christian is no longer going to be able to work in good conscience. We're already seeing this. If you as a Christian refuse to celebrate perversion, you may have a hard time being a, a baker, a photographer, a county clerk, an NGO, an actor, a restaurant owner, a hotel operator. I mean, think about it. What if you're the event coordinator at a hotel? I was in Grapevine yesterday. Big sign, LGBLT, whatever, you know, celebration. And the hotel's putting out the flags and they're selling the, you know, the food and the booze and everything else. What if you're that person? How long can you do that in good conscience? We have to realize that choosing our identity in Christ will cost us. It is an active choice. Faith actively chooses, and we need to do it without fear. We need not be wringing our hands, okay? We need to do it without fear. And though Moses made that choice, which seemed hard in the moment, he did it without fear, and he never looked back. And God provided for him 40 years in the land of Midian. And then he turned around and he provided 40 years with 2 million Israelites. Can you imagine what Moses must have thought every day? Well, I don't have my servants bringing me food, but look how God provides manna. Well, I don't have my servants bringing me water, but look how the Lord never allows us to thirst. 
I don't have servants laying out my clothes, but yet mine never wear out. The treasures of Egypt didn't even compare. His identity in that pagan world had no bearing, had no tug on his heart. Will the same be true for us? When the choice is put in front of us, will we be able to walk away? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Faith identifies boldly without fear. Look at number three. Choose God's approval over man's without fear. Verse 27 of chapter 11 in Hebrews. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Now, to be fair, we know Moses' timing was off like Jacob, right? He tried to help God sort of um, force his plan, we might say. We know that he even took vengeance by killing a taskmaster who was beating a Hebrew. And he just couldn't understand why these people didn't want you know, him as a leader. And yet, when it came time to leave, knowing that the king was angry, here's the key right here, he fled, but he left without fear. He left without fear. Certainly Moses could have been res restored. He was part of the royal family. They were corrupt anyway. And yet, as he chose his identity, so he chose in the face of danger not to be afraid. Now, this is a hard one, and I looked at commentators try to discuss this, but I think this one actually bears a lot on our life as Christians. Do we, as humans, crave the favor of those we respect? We do. Who's the most respected man in the world at the time? Pharaoh. Who's angry? Pharaoh. It'd be hard for me to sleep at night. I want to make the man happy. I'm not just afraid about what he would do to me. I, I, I'm afraid that he doesn't like me anymore. I'm afraid of my reputation. I'm afraid of what people think. And the world is forever putting pressure on us to bow to their approval based upon their sense of morality. And with an, a new identity comes a new affection of the heart. And whereas I served myself before, now I serve Christ. And I'll promise you the world ain't going to be happy about it. Peer pressure is too soft a word. Worldly pressure tells us to conform, submit, bow, or you will be canceled. You need to do this or that, or say this or that or the other, to protect yourself, to get ahead, or to simply be accepted. We saw this with both Abraham and Isaac. They lied about their wife. Oh, she's my sister. Because they're afraid. We see it in the workplace. We see it with our extended family. Rod, why are you such a serious Christian? Anyone ever get that? Hey, I'm a Christian too! I haven't been to church in 10 years, but that's okay. But you're just a little too serious. I had a great conversation with Jack this morning saying, yeah, the more we apply the gospel, the more we will even be vilified by even Christians and called fundamentalist. The question is this. Whose approval do you desperately need? So much so that you are willing to compromise what you believe rather than boldly do what is right. Who is that person? Think about it. Think about it in your mind. Is it your boss? Is it your friend? Is it your spouse? When I started off saying that Christians need to have a spiritual spine, I meant it. In 16 years of being this senior past, this church's senior pastor, I cannot tell you the number of times where I've, had an, I've seen an unfaithful spouse fall into rebellion and the faithful one follow them right out the door because their husband or their wife got angry at them 
and they cared more about the favor of their spouse than they did doing what was right. In fact, I'll go a step further. I have yet to see the faithful spouse stay. In 16 years, what does that tell you? We even, even disciplined guys out of the church for being abusive with their wife standing right by us, thanking us, praying for us. We've cared for her financially. We've let them live with, her, with, live with people. And then when he walked out the door, he got angry at her and she trotted right out after him. Christians need to have the kind of faith that is bold that does what is right no matter the consequences, even if it costs you in relationships. It's God's approval we need, not man's. And I hate to say it, even if it's your spouse, even if it's your family. Those are hard words, but they're true. We do everything we can to try to maintain human relationships. But when people draw a line and say, no, no, you please me rather than God, you answer like Peter and John did. You tell me who we're called to obey, God or man. I'm going to obey God. Number four, choose atonement over autonomy without fear. Now, this is kind of hard to understand, but I'll explain it. Verse 28, it says, By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Now, Moses announces in Exodus chapter 2 about uh, the coming of the angel of the Lord. He says, you don't need to turn there, but he says, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I'm about to go out in the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and shall never be again. But against the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. You know the story, the, Israel, the Israelites were to slaughter a lamb, and they were to put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, and the blood was to be a covering. The word for covering is atonement. And the understanding, the type, was that a lamb was judged in your place, and the angel of the Lord would pass over because judgment had already been satisfied, or a picture of judgment had. And of course, you know, fast forward, 1,500 years, Christ was the perfect, unblemished Passover lamb. Behold, John the Baptist said, the lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world, right? So this was a picture. And in this atonement, as it were, this picture of atonement, the Israelites were saying, we're trusting God's provision to protect us from his judgment. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. But that's what they're doing. Think how silly it was to put blood on a door post, a door frame. What are you doing? Well, you know, Moses told us to do this, and apparently this is going to work. Now, they knew it was more than that. This was putting all of their trust, all who they are, into God's hands. That he would protect us from himself by providing a substitute lamb. Get the picture? Well, the Egyptians knew this, and I'll promise you that night that there were a lot of safe rooms that the Egyptians put their children in, and lots of private security was hired to protect them, and yet not one of those firstborn survived. But what were those Egyptians choosing rather than atonement? They were choosing autonomy. And isn't that what non-Christians do? And in fact, sometimes even even that's what we fall into. I can handle it. I can protect myself. I can do it on my own. And yet Moses and the Israelites said, no, genuine faith completely trusts God without fear, 
even fear of God's judgment. We, we, we use this term, are you saved? And what we're, what we're really saying biblically is we are saved from God's righteous judgment that is due for us. If you're an unbeliever here today, let me just explain this to you. That all of us have sinned. You know that. I don't have to tell you. But our holy, righteous creator, God, created us for worship. And we, when we sinned, shook our fist at him and committed treason. And yet, God, being rich in his mercy, loving his creation that hated him, said, I want to have a relationship with my creation. But we cannot stand in his presence and not die because we are sinful. And so he sent his own son to live the life that we could not live and died the death that was due for us. And he was that Passover lamb. And his blood atones or covers our sin so that we are brought into relationship. And you may say, I've never done this. How do I do this? How can I be made right with God? Because right now I stand under his judgment. Do you know what God wants out of you? He wants you to obey all the law perfectly. Is that it? Won't happen. Can't happen. No. He wants you to bow the knee to the Lamb. He wants you to turn from your sin and the world and all it has to offer and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is not perfection. This is a transfer of allegiance. And that's what went on. They trusted Passive intellectual assent about who Jesus is will not do. You have to commit. You have to choose. Look at our last one. Choose sovereignty over security without fear. This is my favorite one. Verse 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Now, you remember this picture from Exodus 14, but let me read it to you. In fact, let's go ahead and turn there. We'll end with this. Exodus chapter 14. Do you feel your faith being strengthened? through the instrumentality of God's word? Do you feel even your understanding of faith changing? It's robust. Read the book of James. Genuine faith works. Well, look at verse 5, starting in Exodus 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we have let... Uh, let Israel go from serving us. So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Verse eight, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel, circle this, were going out boldly. We're going out boldly. This is written in 1446 B.C. Hebrews is written probably around 62 A.D. What is the faith being described here? It is a bold, walking, decision-making faith. Verse 9, Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pil-Hathiroth in front of Baal-Zephron. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they, what? Became very frightened. They went from going out boldly to becoming very frightened. Is that how our faith works sometimes? I made the decision. I'm marching. I'm going out boldly. Whoa, I didn't see 600 chariots behind me. <laughs> kind of changes the equation a little bit. Yeah, we're done with them. I'm free man. This is great. Oh, my goodness. They became very frightened. 
And I, and I love this part. This is what, when Jews get scared, they get sarcastic. Okay. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have brought us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So much for bold marching, right? But let's be honest. The faith that God gave us at salvation is the same faith by which he grows us and the same faith by which we live by. And we are either being filled with the Spirit by His Word, or we're quenching it by our fear and selfishness. God has given us the faith. And yet, sometimes we have doubts. And so they find themselves at another crossroads. Certainly, security and safety are better than death, right? I guess it depends what kind of death, doesn't it? I guess it depends on what kind of death, and I don't mean the momentary death. Genuine faith will not choose security and safety. Genuine faith will choose pleasing God. They know that what they face as they are at the land, of, I think it's called Yom Smuth, the land's end, they're looking at the Red Sea, is that if they move forward, God may do a miracle, but they will surely die by the sword or they will die by the sea. But they're facing death. In that moment, will faith choose to please God even when death is on the line? Right? They can wave a white flag, can't they? I mean, think about it. I don't know if you think about it this way. They could stop everything right now. The reason Pharaoh and his our officers and army are chasing them is because they want them back. They don't want two million dead Israelites. All they have to do is wave the white flag, throw their hands up and say, hey, we're coming home. We'll take that beating. We'll take a few months of extra hard work. You do whatever you have to do. I'd rather live. And so you can imagine them. They're basically saying, Moses, safety and security, even being a slave is better than death. What do you think this Hebrew church in the first century is saying? Hey, safety and security, it's better than persecution. It's better than dying at the hands of Nero. Judaism will take us back. Oh, there might be a little embarrassment. Oh, I fell into this cult for a while. I believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But hey, at least I'm alive, right? But the fact is, is that faith does not choose security and safety out of fear. Faith chooses sovereignty. Again, it puts our lives in the hands of the all-sovereign, good creator king. The one who has not only created us, but has redeemed us back from the slave market of sin. It is the one who promises us no one will ever snatch us out of the palm of his hand. What is death? It's a momentary lapse into eternity. Look at verse 13. Moses said to his people, he, gets, he just gets to the, the heart of the matter, do not fear. Verses 23 through 29 of Hebrews 11, they did it without fear. They did it without fear. They did it without fear. He says, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you remain silent. And then here's the best part, verse 15. Then Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. He might as well have said, Tell the sons of Israel to take their faith out for a spin. Faith has legs. 
Faith actively decides, and it does it without fear, and it does it in the face of death. Circumstances do not have bearing on our faith. God does. Faith goes forward. It chooses sovereignty. It trusts that the Lord will fight our battles. What did David say? He is our refuge, and he is our strength. For the Israelites to not make a decision in that moment, the decision would have been made for them. Amen? We do not have the option to not decide. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, around the turn of the 20th century, saw that much of the Judeo-Christian values upon which this uh, nation had been built were fading away. And it was primarily because of issues of comfort, choosing self, choosing what's best. And he has a quote, I had it on my wall for years, and he said, the things that will destroy America are peace. Uh, peace instead of uh, peace first instead of duty first. Prosperity at any cost. Safety first instead of duty first. And the love of soft living and the get-rich-quick theory of life. Now, this is a guy who was not deeply spiritual, and he basically saw those who choose the soft life. Peace at any price. Safety first instead of duty first. Those who choose this will end up losing in the end. And so here's the question. Will we step out in faith, boldly choosing God's will rather than our own identity? Will we, Metro Bible? When tyranny comes, when the world closes in, when the pleasures of the world are so enticing, will we actively choose? And not pat ourselves on the back like something we've done, but do it because we want to please our God. We want to please our Lord Jesus Christ. Will we take on His reproach as He took on ours? The preacher says, Moses did. And you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. How much more?